Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening. We didn't actually have a Shir this week, but I thought it was appropriate to do a podcast nevertheless to keep the continuity going. So, all those listening on the podcast, hello. And may I say, as people do on podcasts, that if you like this, please rate and review it because it helps other people know about this podcast. So we are learning Rashi on the Chumash and we're up to Bereshit Peruk Yud Dalad Pasuk Yud. And we did the first part of Pasuk Yud last week. And now we're on to a little bit of grammar, but we'll have to try and understand what the Rashi is saying grammatically and why Rashi brings this piece of grammar at this point. And the story is that we're in the middle of the battle of the four kings and the five kings. And the four kings are in the process of defeating the five kings. And we read in Pasugiyot, Ve'emek ha-sidim be'erot be'erot chemar. The place called Emek ha-sidim was full of pits of bitumen. Ve'yanasu melech Saddam ve'amora. And the king of Saddam and the king of Amora fled. Ve'yiplu shama. And they fell there into one of the pits. Ve'hanisharim hera nasu. And those who were remaining fled hera. And what does hera mean? So Rashi says on the words hera nasu, le har nasu. They fled to the mountain. So Rashi replaces the word hera by the word le har. To, well, actually it's not going to be to the mountain as we will see, to a mountain. So it continues Rashi. Hera kamo le har. The word hera is like the word le har, to a mountain. Kol Any word that needs a lamad at the beginning, in other words, to express the idea of towards somewhere, alternatively, you can place a hey at the end. So the hey at the end of hera is in place of a lamad at the beginning of la har. But then he says, ben hara la le Ha-ha-ra. There is a distinction between our word hera and the word hahara, which also means something about two mountain, which occurs later on in Perak Yudtet Pasuk Yudzaim. And the difference is shahei shabasof hateva omedet bimkom lamad shabarosha. A hey at the end of a word stands instead of a lamad at the beginning. But it doesn't replace a lamad with a patach underneath. Now, a lamad with a patach underneath means to the. A lamad with a shava underneath just means to and not to a particular mountain or a particular place. Sorry, hera, in our case, kamo lahar. Okomo Elhar. So Hera is like two mountain, i.e. to a mountain, or it's like Elhar, which means the same thing, also to a mountain. And it doesn't specify to which mountain. It's any old mountain. And what it means here when it says Hera Nasu, they fled to mountain, it means everyone fled to whichever mountain they found first of all. But when it puts a hey at the beginning, lichtov hahara, to write to the mountain, so the hey at the end means to, and the hey at the beginning with a patak means to the, sorry, in this case it's got a kamat, that's because the next letter is a guttural, but we won't go into that. Or the case of hamidbara. Again, the hey at the end means two, and the hey at the beginning of Hamidbara with a patach means the desert, so to the desert. Pitrono como el hahar, or como la hahar. So then the explanation, the interpretation with a hey at the beginning and a hey at the end would be to the mountain, or like la hahar, which also means to the mountain. Umashmala oto ha hayadua. And that means to a particular known mountain, umafurish parsha, as will be explained or is explained in the parsha. So what is Rashi doing here? 
So Rashi is telling you that a hey at the end of a word can be equivalent to a lamad at the beginning of a word. And it's no secret that Rashi actually makes that point in a few different places. But here he's stressing that a hey at the end of the word is not equivalent to la, to the, at the beginning of the word, but it just means two. So here we have hera, which means two mountain in an unspecified way. Now, why does Rashi feel the need to say this? And I think the Rashi's given the answer himself because he's actually making a comparison and pointing out the difference between two words which look similar. Because if you look at the source of the other word that looks similar, perigyutet posigyutzayin, as Rashi says, you'll find the word ha-ha-ra, to the mountain. So on a simple level, Rashi is aware that in this peric you have the word hera, which means something about to mountains. And five uh, parakium later, you have the word hahara, which means something about two mountains. And you might want to know the difference between the two. And Rashi is doing a classic Rashi thing, pointing out two things that are similar but different and explaining to you the difference. But the difference is significant because in Perak Yud Zion, sorry, Perak Yud Tet, Pasuk Yud Zion, the full Pasuk reads as follows. We're talking about Lot who has just been saved from the destruction of Saddam. And the Pasuk there, Yotet Yud Zion, reads, And it was when they brought them outside, that refers to the angels who brought out Lot and his, originally his wife, but she didn't make it, and his daughters, and he said, So one of the angels said to Lot, Flee, save yourself, don't look behind you, and don't stay in the whole plain, but flee to the mountain. So the angel is telling him, don't flee to any old mountain, but flee to the mountain in particular. And Rashi there says, on the words, go and flee to Avraham, because he is sitting in, he's dwelling in the mountain. So when the angel says to Lot, flee to the mountain, he is very much saying a particular mountain. He doesn't mean flee anywhere you like, where there happens to be a mountain, but go to Abraham. That angel, as Rashi explains it there, is using the word hahara because he wants him to go to a specific place. Whereas here, the whole point of the description, they fled to mountain or to a mountain, specifies that they weren't going in a particular direction. They were fleeing. And as is the nature of people who are fleeing from the oncoming enemy, they just go in any direction they can. So the word hera specifically means not to a particular place, but to any place. So Rashi has to sp- explain, number one, why this word is different from the one in Peragyotet, even though it looks similar, and that the difference that he brings fits perfectly with the explanation there, i.e. where Lot was told to go to a particular mountain where Abraham was, and the explanation here that the people fleeing fled in no particular direction at all. That, I believe, is what Rashi comes to stress with this quite lengthy grammatical piece. And now we come to Pasuk Yud Aleph. And they took all the property of Saddam, that's they, the victorious four kings, they took the property of Saddam at the Amara, which were amongst the places that they had captured, and all their food, and they went. Rashi has nothing to say on that Pasuk, so we'll go on to Pasuk Yudbet. And they took Lot and his property, Ben Achi Avram, the son of the brother of Avraham, and they went, and he was dwelling in Saddam. And Rashi's got something to say on Vahu Yoshev Basadam. He was dwelling in Saddam. So why does the Pasuk tell us that Lot was dwelling in Saddam? So first of all, Rashi says, it's come to tell us, Mi garam lo zot. Who caused him this? Yeshivato Basadam. His dwelling in Saddam. So Lot's ill fortune in being captured and presumably kidnapped and held hostage was a function, a result, says Rashi, of him dwelling in Saddam. So why does Rashi say this? And the reason is because the words for Hu Yoshev Saddam are redundant. 
they're redundant, I would say, in two respects. The first is that we know he's in Saddam, because in Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Lot chose the plain of the Yardain, and then we read in Pasuk Yud Bet, Avram Yashav Ba'are, uh, this is Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Bet, Avram Yashav Ba'aret Kanan, Lot Yashav Ba'are Hekikavi Ahal Ad Saddam. So we already know that he was living in Saddam. One can also add, perhaps, that the Hu Yashem Saddam doesn't really make sense when he's just been captured. He's just been taken away from Saddam. Unless you would read the Hu Yashem Saddam as he had been living in Saddam, possibly. But certainly the redundancy of telling us his home address when we already knew it from Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Bet, shows that we don't need those words, which is why Rashi has to say that there's another explanation, another need for them. And the need is that it's telling us that there's a cause and effect. Things happen for a reason. That Lot is punished because he deserved it, because he chose to live amongst wicked people in Saddam. It can also be the case that Rashi is continually painting a picture of Lot in order to contrast him with Abraham of somebody who's not very good, as we've said in the past. Incidentally, this Pasuk, Yudalad Yudbet, particularly the way Rashi explains it, is the mirror image of Perak Yud Gimel Pasuk Hay. There we read, uh, when Abraham returned from Mitzrayim, we're laden with uh, lots of property, we read, Also Lot, who went with Abraham, had flocks and cattle and tents. And Rashi says, the words Haholech et Avram are redundant there because we know that Lot was accompanying Adam, uh, Avram. And so Rashi's comment, Haholech et Avram, is a very, very similar comment to the one he makes in our Pasuk, Yudalad Yudbet. There in Yud Gimel Hay, he says, Mi Garam Lozot, who caused him that he should have this? Who caused Lot that he should be the recipient of all this, all these goods? Halichato im Avram. He's going with Avram. So Rashi is giving a comment which very much mirrors what he said in Yud Gimel Hay. There the words Haolech et Avram were redundant, and therefore, says Rashi, they come to explain why Lot was fortunate. Here the words Hu Yoshev Basadam are redundant, and therefore Rashi comes to say that they explain the word, they explain why Lot was unfortunate. And Rashi uses almost exactly the same words. Mi garam lozot in our case, and mi garam shahaita lozot in the other case. So what happens next? Pasuk yud gimel, vayavo hapalit, and the refugee came, vayaged Avram, and he told to Avram haivri. We'll leave that for Rashi. Vehu shochein veelonei mamre haemori hachi hachi eshkol vaachi aner vehein baalei brit Avram. And he, Avram, was dwelling in the plains of Mamre, uh, the Emori, the brother of Eshkol and the brother of Aner, and they were Bali Brit, we will leave that for Rashi, of Avram. But Rashi wants to tell us uh, who was this Palit, and where was he a Palit, a refugee, from? So Rashi says, Lefi Peshuto, according to the simple meaning. Now, by the way, different texts have uh, a different reading here. Uh, and it's worthy of note that the comment that he's about to bring comes from the Midrash Tanchuma, which is a Midrash, not a Pshat. Although um, it could be that Rashim feels this is the Pshat compared to his second explanation, which is more of a Midrash. Or it could be that our text is corrupted, and it should also say here, Lefi Tanchuma. But what does it say? Lefi Pshuto, Og Shapalat Mil Hamilchama. This was Og. Now, Og is somebody who appears much later in the Chumash, at, towards the end of the Midbar, where the Bnei Israel, on their way into Eretz Israel, captured the lands of Sichon and Og. And Og was a giant, and Moshe killed Og, and the Midrash describes uh, it in a very graphic way that the giant Og was very, very, very big. In the in Cedric the Varim, we're told that his bed frame was very large, and he was definitely a giant. Um, so, says Rashi, he was the palit, he was the refugee. And what did he, what was he a refugee from? From the war, the war that's been going on. 
And this sort of fits. That there's been a lot of fighting going on. And the Raphaim were amongst those who were fought against. Uh, that was said in Peregidalad Pasuk Hay, that the four kings um, smote various other nations, including the Raphaim. And it makes sense to say that Og was one of the Raphaim, and therefore he was a palit, he was a refugee from the war. Because in Devarim Peregim, or Pasuk Yudalef, and I'm continuing with the words of Rashi here, it says, V'husha katuv kirak Og nishar miyeta haRaphaim. It says there in Devarim that Og was one of those who remained from the remnants of the Raphaim. So it makes sense to say the remnants of the Raphaim referred to in Devarim is a reference back to this war that we're talking about right now, where the Raphaim got smitten. And so we know that Og is one of the Raphaim. So where is he a polit, a refugee from? From the war that we've just been learning about, and in particular from the smiting of the Raphaim in Pasuk Hay. Continues Rashi, Vezehu Nishar, and this is what is meant by Nishar in the Pasuk in Devarim, Shalohargu Amrafel Vachavirov, that Amrafal and his colleagues had not killed him. Amrafal was one of the four kings who was busy smiting the Raphaim, and they didn't kill Og, as it says in Devarim, that he was Nishar, he was left, because he wasn't killed. Uh, continues the Rashi. So Amraphel and his colleagues didn't kill him. When they smote the Raphaim in Ashtarot Kanaim, as we read in Pasuk Hay. And Rashi says here that's from the Tanchuma. So Rashi has told us that he is Og and he is a refugee and he's a refugee from the war. And that links the mention here in Pasuk Hay of the smiting of the Raphaim. And in Devarim, Peregimel, Pasuk Yodalef, we're told that Og was one of the leftovers, the ones who survived from the Raphaim. It all fits. One question, why does Rashi have to tell us who he was at all? And the answer is because of the definite article. And this is something which is very much the style of Rashi. If the Pasuk says it's the refugee, then it's somebody that we need to know about already. It must be somebody identifiable. If it were just a, a, a random person, it would just say palit, a refugee. But once it says ha palit, then it's someone about whom we must already know. Now, in this case, and maybe this is why we need another explanation, the already knowing about Og is not quite in the right chronology because we don't at this point in the Chumash know about Og. We only know about him much later in the end of Sefer Bamidbar, and then we learn a bit more about him in the beginning of Sefer Devarim. But right now, in Bereshit, we have never heard of Og. Nevertheless, Rashi says it's good enough if we know about him at a subsequent time. And after all, the Pasuk Devarim about Hunisham, Yetaharafaim, refers back to something that's already happened, but only just happened. Um, but that at least is a reason to identify this palit, which needs identification because of a definite article, and we identify him as Og. Then comes along the Midrash Bereshit Rabbah, says Rashi. Zer Og, this is according to the Midrash, this is also Og, but what he escaped from, what he was a refugee from, is something quite different. Zer Og Shapalat Midur Hamabo. He was one who was saved from the generation of the flood. And that is what is meant by leftovers of the Raphaim. Because it says in Perak Vav, Pasuk Dalad, where it introduces us to Dor HaMabul, that the giants were then in the land. Now, let's piece this together. We know he's one of the Raphaim, because it says in Devarim, but we also know that the Raphaim were giants because that also is said in Devarim Perak uh, Gimel. We, we've talked about this before when we talked about the Raphaim and the Amin and the Zuzamim. Um, that was two weeks ago in Ashia. So the Raphaim were giants. There were giants in the time of the Mabul. And therefore we can link it up and say that Og was one of the giants who existed in the time of the Mabul. And that's what it means. He was the palit. He was the refugee. He was the one who escaped from the flood. So there's a few things to say. So the first thing to say is, why does Rashi 
introduce this second explanation. So one of the answers given is that when we say hapalit, where we, we, we need to identify who the refugee was, and it must be somebody we know from another context. And if he's just from the same war that we're learning about right now, that doesn't really count as another context. It must be something that we've learned about from a previous context. And which one is that? That is the flood. And the next thing to say is, how did Og save himself from the flood? That's a good question. Surely everyone died except Noah and his family. And indeed, this might be part of the difference between the first explanation and the second explanation. According to the first explanation of Rashi, Og did not survive any flood, and the only people who survived the flood was Noah. According to the second explanation, Noah didn't, wasn't the only survivor of the flood, but rather there were others as well. Now, perhaps this uh, falls on the uh, different ways of interpreting Perak Zion, Pasuk Kav Gimel, where it says, Ve'yisha'er ach Noach ve'asher ito beteva. So after it says that everything in the world was wiped out, there remained just Noach and those who are with him in the Teva. And if you look at Rashi there, Perak Zion, Pasuk Kav Gimel, Rashi brings two explanations of ach Noach. And the first is levad Noach, Noach alone, zehu pshuto, that is the simple meaning. Umidrash agada hayagonach v'koha he was groaning and he was uh, oozing blood from the difficulties of all the animals. Now, according to the first explanation, Noah and his family are the only ones who survived the flood. According to the second explanation, Noah doesn't mean that Noah was the only one who survived. It means something else. It means that Noah was in great discomfort. But it doesn't tell us anything about whether there were others who survived the flood. Those two explanations match up perfectly to our two explanations of Rashi on Perak Yudalad, Pasuk Yud Gimel. According to the first explanation, Og did not survive the flood, only Noah and his family did. According to the second explanation, Og did survive the flood, and that means that when it says, Ve'yishayer ach Noach, it doesn't mean Noach was the only survivor with his family, it means something else, as Rashi said there in Zion Kaf Gimel. Now, everyone might wonder, how did Noah survive the flood? So there's actually a difference of opinion between there's a Gemara and there's a Midrash. Interestingly, Rashi doesn't bring either because it's not Rashi's interest at this point to explain how Noah survived the flood. One opinion of the Gemara is that Eretz Yisrael was not flooded, that Hashem preserved Eretz Yisrael and did not punish it, uh, even though the people in there were wicked and needed to be removed. Nevertheless, Eretz Yisrael itself was not flooded. And therefore, it was a means of escape for Og, uh, and I think maybe even others, to go to Eretz Israel and survive the flood. That's one answer. The other answer, which comes from the Midrash, which is probably more widely known, but it's important to know, is certainly not the only explanation, is that Noah, sorry, Og clung to the side of the Teva, to the side of the Ark. Okay, let's carry on with Rashi, because Rashi's got a little bit more to say. Um, having said who Og, who the Palit was, then Rashi says, And he intended that Avram would be killed, and then he, Og, can marry Sarah. Now, Rashi uh, brings this as an explanation of Og's behavior. And it would seem, and most seem to say, that this last comment of Rashi is a continuation of his second explanation because it's the second explanation that who Og was that needs an explanation of why Og came to tell this news to Abraham that Lot had been captured. Because if Og was a refugee from the selfsame war, the very war that's going on at that very point, then it makes sense that Og will come to Avram and say, listen, Avram, there's a war and people have been captured, including your, ne- your nephew, please help. But if Og is a refugee, not from the war, but from the flood, and he has no part in the war, then why is he turning up on Avram's doorstep, or by Avram's tent, to be more accurate, and giving Avraham this news? So to that, Rashi needs to give an explanation. Once Rashi introduces the idea that he's Og who survived the flood, and he's nothing to do with the war, so we need to know why he appears with this news. And Rashi gives the answer that he had very nefarious intentions. 
He wanted Abraham to be killed. So he sends Abraham off on a dangerous mission where he's likely not to return. And then Og can marry Sarah. Uh, fitting with the idea that uh, twice in, her, in our record of Sarah's life, she was kidnapped by other men to be put into their harem. So Sarah was obviously quite a catch. And Og is wanting to marry her uh, for, with a similar motivation. Continues the Pasuk. Um, and it says that uh, Og came, or sorry, the, the Palit came, Avram Ha'ivri. Why is Avram Ha'ivri? What is meant by Ha'ivri? So interestingly enough, before we get into the um, Rashi, the Midrash gives three answers. And the first is that he's a descendant of Aver. And the second, I have to confess that I forget right now. So I won't waste your time while I look it up. And the third is the one that Rashi brings. Shaba me'eva hanahar. He came from across the river. And we can perhaps say that the dispute in the Midrash as to what Ha'ivri means is what was the source of Abraham's merit? Why did Abraham merit to almost single-handedly win the war as he's about to? Why did he come out unscathed and in fact uh, uh, better off in some senses as a result of this war? <clears throat> what was it that gave him that merit? Was it that he was a descendant of Aver, Or was it that he was the one who came Me'eva Hanahar? What's the significance of that? Well, why did he come Me'eva Hanahar? Why did he cross the river? The river being the river Euphrates uh, that divided Mesopotamia from the land of Israel. Avram crossed it because Hashem told him to. Because Lech Lecha, go for yourself, was the command that Abraham gave, Abraham received, uh, either when he was in Urkastim or whether he was in um, uh, Haran, but he was the one who crossed the river at Hashem's command. It was the first of the ten tests, it was a major trial, etc. And therefore, uh, Rashi here understands, according to the way I'm explaining the Midrash, that when Rashi identifies Ha'ivri as Shabame Eva Hanahar, Rashi is telling us that that was the merit that Abraham earned by fulfilling Hashem's command at the time of Lech Lecha. And then the Pasuk says that Abraham was, was dwelling in the plains of Mamre, and Mamre was the brother of Eshkol and also the brother of Aner, the Haim Bali Brit Avram. They were Bali Brit Avram. Uh, says, what does Rashi say that means? Shakartu Imo Brit, that they made with him a covenant. Now, in order to understand the significance of this Rashi, it's worth pointing out that in some versions, there is a continuation. In other versions, this is the end of the comment of Rashi. In some versions, it says, another explanation, they gave him advice about the miller, as will be explained in another place. And Rashi brings that in Perak Yudchet, Pasuk Aleph, at the beginning of the Sedra of Vaera, sorry, Vaera, um, uh, but we'll deal with that when we get there in Yitzhah Hashem. But what the significance of this extra part, which may or may not be in the original of Rashi, is that there are two explanations of what Bale Brit means. Is the word Brit related to Brit Mila, as we colloquially often use the word Brit, or is the word Brit just simply meaning a covenant, which is exactly what it actually does mean? So Rashi says it means a covenant. There is not a reference here to Brit Mila. If there were, it would have been called something about Brit Mila. But the words Bale Brit Avram, Avram means they were those who had made a covenant with Avraham. And Rashi, by saying Shakartu Imo Brit, he's actually rejecting the alternative explanation, namely that it's something to do with Brit Mila. And I would suggest that because he says the word Brit on its own does not mean Mila, it means covenant. Let's move on to Pasuk Yudalad. So what was Avraham's response once he receives this news? And Avraham heard that his brother had been captured. Interestingly, there's a sort of confusion between brother and what the actual relationship of Lot to Avraham, which was brother-in-law or nephew. But as we've said earlier, <coughs> the word ach can mean more than just literal brother, and it can to extend to brother-in-law or nephew or both. So Avraham heard that his nephew had been captured. The Yarek et Chanichav. 
So we'll leave it to Rashi to explain those words. Yelide Beito, the children of his house, Shemona Asa Ushloshmeot, 318, Vayirdov Ad Dan, and he chased up to Dan. So what does Vayerek et Chanichav mean? Says Rashi, Vayuerd Vayerek, Katargumo, is to be understood like it is in the Targum, in Onkelos, which is Vazariz, which means he infused or he encouraged. And that's what uh, the word Vayerek means. And then Rashi brings three other explanations, three other uses of this word to show that in each case it means to be encouraged or to be armed, to be made ready. So the next one is in Vayikra Kavav, Pasuk Lamad Gimel, in Pasha B'chokotai, where we have the Tochacha, the uh, terrible things that will happen to Eretz Yisrael, to, to Bnei Yisrael. V'chein v'harikoti acharehem cherev. And I will sharpen or uh, infuse or do something after them with my sword. So I will make my sword ready. And there the Targum says, Azdayin v'charve alehem. I will be armed with the, uh, my sword against them. And the next example is from Shemot Peret Tatvav, Pasuk Tet, um, which was in the Shira, uh, after the Kriyat Yamsuf, after the sitting of the sea, V'chein Arik Charbi. And Rashi doesn't explain that here, but it means, uh, continuing his idea, it's something to do with my sword, getting my sword ready. V'chein Hayerek Chanit Usgar, that's a Pasuk from Tehillim, and the word herik is whatever it means here, which is something to do with getting ready. And my spear and my uh, sagor, which is a, another type of weapon. Um, and so Rashi says in each case, herek is something to do with getting ready, getting infused. And in each case, it refers to a sword or a sword type weapon. The slight problem is that if you look at Rashi's comments on those pasukim, he says something different. There he says, uh, for instance, of a harikoti, and in particular in the Shira, where he has more to say on the word arik in Shemot Tet Vav Tet, he says it's related to the word rake, meaning empty. And arik charbi means I will draw my sword, because when you draw the sword, you leave the scabbard in which the sword resides empty. So, and then he explains why it sounds like I'm emptying my sword, but actually means I use my sword to empty my scabbard. And similarly, in Vayikra, uh, where it says, Vaharikoti acharehem cherev, they will, I will draw my sword against them. Same thing. So why does Rashi say here, Vayerek means the Zariz, to, to infuse, to get ready, and he quotes the very Pesukim, where in the other places he says it means something different. So the Mizrahi says the, the only way that he finds that we can explain this is basically means two things. And in, the, in one context, it sort of veers more to one meaning. In the other context, it veers more to another meaning. But basically, the two meanings are similar and they are analogous. And so Rashi, in a different place, will give a different meaning, which is more relevant to the reference to a sword and here he'll give a different meaning, which is more relevant to Vayerek et Chanichav. We still don't know what Chanichav are, but it's not, not a sword. And so in each context, Rashi gives the meaning which is more appropriate. But nevertheless, it's the, uh, each, in each case, the word Harek can be explained in both ways. Um, I'm probably stumbling over this explanation of Mizrahi because it's a little bit hard to understand. I think this remains quite a big problem with Rashi, why he brings the very Pesukim as examples of the meaning of Vayerek, whereas in those Pesukim, he actually explains the word in a different way. But here he says it means Vazariz. And in a moment, he will explain a bit more. Uh, sorry, and then he says, I'm sorry, the, what does he infuse? Vayerek et Hanichav. Um, well, the word chanich, um, any madrich from Bnei Akiva will recognize it as the people who you are, of whom you are the madrichim. So madrich is a leader and a chanich is uh, the person whom the leader leads. Well, it's actually not quite that. It's actually something a bit more precise. And we'll see what Rashi says. But so Abraham is infusing his chanichav. But before we get into Chanichav, we have to understand the next comment of Rashi, which is also problematic, but for a different reason. It says Rashi, Chanachol Ketiv. 
It's written in the singular, his chanich, singular, whereas we have hanichav, which is his chanichim, plural. The problem is that no text that we have has the, uh, this, this word chanichav printed as chanicho. But in Rashi's Chumash, apparently, it was written as chanicho. There are a few places where Rashi says that the spelling of the word is in a particular way, and it's not the way our Sefer Torah spells it, the Sefer, the Sefer Torah that we have today. So either one can do a bit of a, of a twist and a stretch and say that's not quite what Rashi means. The word Hanichav can sort of be pronounced a bit like Hanicho. Um, perhaps I'm not doing justice to this idea, but I think it is very hard to say that. Uh, it's much easier to say what, what the words seem to mean, that in Rashi's Sefer Torah, it didn't say Hanichav, it said Hanicho, but was read as Hanichav. In particular, the second Yud, don't know about the first Yud, but the second Yud we have. So Rashi's Sefer Torah did not have, and um, it was read, uh, sorry, it was read as Hanichav, but it was written as Hanicho. It, it, although it might seem radical, it might even seem dangerous, uh, it is clear from comments like this and from other comments of Rashi in various places that the spelling of a Sefer Torah in his day was not exactly the same as the spelling of a Sefer Torah in our day. Now, some people get very, very worried about this, and some people think this is a, a terrible blemish on our emuna. Uh, and if we believe that every word of the Torah came from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and every letter and we use even individual letters to learn out things like a Gezerah Shava, like a comparison of one word to another, and we learn out Halachot from this, how can it be that there have been changes in the letters of the Sefer Torah? Well, I would say two things. Number one, even if there are changes over the generations, the number of changes are very, very small. And it's interesting, if you have a discussion like this about the integrity of the letters of the Sefer Torah, with somebody who doesn't come from a religious perspective, a Jewish religious perspective, and you tell them that there might be half a dozen letters which uh, have changed over the millennia, they will say, that's amazing. What an amazing uh, reproduction of the Sefer Torah over uh, millennia and how very, very few letters might have become corrupted over that period. That's amazing. It's almost a miracle. If you ask somebody who comes from a religious Jewish perspective, they might get very frightened by this idea. But it's important to understand that when the Gemara learns halachot from a single letter in the Torah, as Rav Hirsch makes clear, it's not that the letter in the Torah, the presence or absence of the letter, tells them the halacha. The halacha came from Sinai. It was part of a Torah Shabbat Peh. And what Chazal do was either by a tradition or by innovation, they found a reference in the Torah which alluded to that halacha. But if that letter which they found in the Torah was not the same letter that we have today, or, 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 or it was a letter that didn't actually belong there, then they would have found that Gezerah Shava, they would have found that source from somewhere else. Because the halachot that came from Sinai, they will find sources in the Torah. If not here, they'll find it there. So it's not to say that if it turns out one letter is different from Rashi's Sefer Torah to ours, that Rashi would have learned different halachot that we would learn, and that that would be indeed critical. But rather, if it's necessary to find a support in the Chumash um, for one particular halacha, and it's dependent on one letter, and that letter actually was a mistake, then don't worry, we would have found it from somewhere else. That's exactly what Rav Hirsch says. And, and that is, I think, the way to treat these uh, occasional references in Rashi to a spelling of a word which is different from the way we have it. Anyway, what is the significance of Hanicho according to Rashi? It would be one Hanich, one person in Abraham's household alone, and not 318 of them. But rather, says Rashi, Ze Eliezer. This refers to Eliezer himself alone. Shachanchu be mitzvot. That he educated him to mitzvot. So in a minute, Rashi is going to tell us what chanich actually means, which is a very important idea because, of course, chanich is the same word as chinuch, which we translate as education. Let's see how Rashi translates it. But before we get to there, let's understand this about the idea that the chanichav, plural, was actually chanicho, singular, and that's a reference to uh, Eliezer alone. So there's a, what Rashi is saying is that Eliezer, whom we haven't met before, by the way, we're going to meet later, that was the uh, chosen and uh, highly prior, um, valued servant of Abraham, 
According to Rashi, he was the servant whom Abraham sent with the very precious mission of finding a wife for Yitzchak. Uh, the Torah doesn't actually identify him as Eliezer, but Rashi does. Um, and therefore we can see that Abraham obviously valued Eliezer very, very highly. To the extent, says Rashi, that according to this reading of Chanicho, that he was only, there was only one Chanich, that his one servant, Eliezer, was so great that number one, he was like an entire army, and number two, he was an entire army, that Abraham and Eliezer alone went on to have the fight and to be victorious, as we will see. Uh, and it's perhaps brought uh, borne out by the last part of the Pasuk, where it says, Vayirdof ad Dan, he chased, he chased the enemy up to Dan. Now, who was he? So it could be Abraham, um, but it also could be Abraham's servant in the singular, rather than a whole army of people, as the simple pshat of the Pasuk implies. So we'll get back to that in a moment. But Rashi now is going to say, what does the word chanich mean? So Rashi has started the process by saying that the chanich of Abraham is Eliezer, shachanchu mitzvot, because Abraham chanoch himd, I'm sorry, to mitzvot. So what does chanoch actually mean? It means inaugurated him. As Rashi goes on to say, v'hu lashon hatchila kenisat ha'adam or keli le'umanot shahu atid la'amod bo. Says Rashi, what is chinuch? It is the expression of the beginning of the entry of a person or a, an item to the task that it will be given, uh, the, the task that it will in the future stand in. In other words, I think the best translation is inauguration or starting the process of elevation of a person to a task or a thing to a particular role. And now perhaps we can understand Chanukat HaMizbeach. We usually translate that as the dedication of the Mizbeach. But what it actually means is the, um, the, the inauguration of the Mizbeach. In fact, let me lead Rashi, let me leave Rashi for himself to tell us other examples of Chanukah. Because the next thing he says, V'chein Chanoch Lenar, Pasuk in Mishlei, Perek Bet, goes on to say Kedarko. Um, and we use that as, we understand that as educate the child according to his way. But according to what Rashi is saying, educate is not quite the right word. It means, rather, it's inaugurate the child, prepare the child, raise the child to their new role. What uh, in English we call education, which comes actually from the Latin juke, uh, which means to lead. In Hebrew, we call chanuch, uh, which is inauguration, which is getting the person whom one is teaching, up to the next level, ready for the task ahead. And it's interesting to give a whole different perspective on the Jewish idea of chinuch, which is not the same as the Roman uh, non-Jewish idea of education. Education is about leading, chinuch is about inaugurating. And what type of inauguration? So Rashi says, after he says, he gives the idea of chanukat hamizbeach, and the next one is Chanukat Habayit from Tehillim. What is Chanukat HaMizbeach? When was Chanukat HaMizbeach? Well, when the first sacrifices were offered on the Mizbeach at the time of the dedication of the Mishkan, that was Chanukat HaMizbeach. So we can translate that as dedication, or perhaps we can use the word inauguration. We certainly can't use the word education. There was no education of the Mizbeach. But what happened when that Korban was offered on that Mizbeach? It rose to its task. Instead of being just stones and earth, it became the place where sacrifices are offered to God. Chanukata Bayit is when the house becomes readied for its task. It's elevated, it's sanctified, it's given a mission. And as by giving it a mission, it's raised up in stature. That is Chinuch. So every madrich of a youth movement who has Chanichim, Every educator, as we say in English, who is a machanech, should realize that what they're doing with their young people whom they are leading or educating is really they are inaugurating them, they are raising them, they are elevating them, they are sanctifying them. That is chinuch. Continues Rashi, Ubalaz korin lo instiner. And in uh, French, in medieval French, it's called 
Encinaire, if I pronounce that correctly, and my medieval French is not really good enough to tell me what that word is. Then Rashi says, Shmona Asarvagoma, and this is a reference back to the Pasuk, where it says there were 318 um, Yilidei Beito, who were growing, who were children of his household. So, again, the Pasuk says Chanichav, which is the plural of Chanich. Uh, so it's lots of people whom he was inaugurating. Yilidei Beito, lots of people who were the children of his household. But Rashi said that it actually can be read in the singular, implying it was Eliezer alone. So now we go back to that idea. On the words Shemona Asava Gomer, that's the 18 of the 318 in the Pasuk, Raboteno Amru, Eliezer Levado Haya. Our rabbis say that it was Eliezer alone. The Hu Minyan Gematria Shel Shemo. And that is the number of the gematria of his name. And the gematria of Eliezer is 318. Pause for a moment. Gematria in Rashi. Yes, it happens occasionally, not very often. But there are a few occasions where Rashi uses the gematria in order to derive a significance. Rashi here quotes the opinion of the rabbis, and he says it's Rabotein or Amro, which implies it's not the Pshat, but it's the Midrash, that the Shemona Asau Shlosh Me'at, the 318, was not 318 different people, but was one person who was equivalent to 318. Incidentally, the Maharal says it couldn't have been there was only one person. Abraham wouldn't have relied on such a miracle. One can't rely on a miracle, as we learn from various places in Chumash, and the Avot knew this, that one has to try and minimize the amount of miraculous help one needs from a Kaddish Baruch Hu by doing everything within one's own nature, within one's own natural capabilities to achieve the result. And if those natural capabilities fall short, then Hashem helps. That's how we uh, understand the, the extent to which we can rely on a miracle. So it doesn't make sense to say that Abraham went with just one follower off to do battle against these four armies. Rather, says the Maharal, of course there was number of Yiladei Beito, but Eliezer was equivalent to all of them. And Eliezer was the one who actually, together with Abraham, physically won the war. Not that Abraham only went with one servant, but that one servant was, in effect, in, as we see from the result, the equivalent of all of the others. And finally, on this uh, Pasuk, on which we've had so much to say, Rashi has something to say on the words Ad-Dan. Uh, he chased up to Dan. And Rashi says, Sham Tashash Kocho, there his strength weakened. Because he saw that in the future his children were going to establish there an Egel, a golden calf. That's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, and it's a reference to the in- incident in Malachim Aleph, in Perak. Um, Yud Bet of Malachim Aleph, where Yeroboam split from um, Rachavoam. Rachavoam was the son of Shlomo. And Yeroboam said, I don't want to be uh, under Rachavoam. And for various reasons, we won't get into the politics of it, he split the kingdom and he took away the 10 northern tribes. And he realized that he didn't want the people in the north, which the kingdom which he called Israel, as opposed to the kingdom in the south, which was now called Yehuda. He didn't want the people in, in Israel to be going to Yerushalayim because that was across the border. So he dissuaded them from going to Yerushalayim by giving them other places to worship. And he set up two golden calves and one of them was in Dan. So Rashi says that's why the Torah tells us that he only chased them to Dan. Why does Rashi need to say this? Because otherwise, why do we need to know this detail? In fact, I mean, I think we can establish a general rule that according to Rashi, the Torah only tells us these little details, names and places, if there is a reason for them. Again, we can say many times the Torah is not a history book. It's not just giving us a collection of facts. It's giving us a collection of messages. That is the nature of the Torah. And so when it tells us he chased until done and then he stopped, there must be a significance to why he stopped and the significance which teaches us a lesson. So he stopped at Dan because that is where an Egel was to be established. Um, 
Let's go on to Pasuk Tet Vav. I'm just a little bit worried that uh, we won't get to uh, another comment of Rashi that I want to compare to the one we've just seen. Oh, we will get it to it in Pasuk Tet Vav. Okay. Pasuk Tet Vav says, Vayechalek Alehem Laila, um, which is hard to explain, something about dividing on them the night. Huva Avadav, he and his servants, uh, servants in the plural again, which implies that the idea was Eliezer alone is not pshat. Vayakem, and he smote them. fame and he chased them. Ad chova, until a place called chova. Asher mismol ledomesek, which is to the left of domesek, which is the biblical name for what we today call Damascus. So something about dividing the night and smiting and chasing up to Chova, and we're told where Chova is. So Rashi, first of all, has got two things to say about Vayachalek Alehem. Says Rashi, Lefib Shuto, according to the simple meaning, Sares Hamikra, we have to change the order of the text. Vayachalek Hu Vaavadav Alehem Laila, and he divided, he and his servants, against them, Laila will have to be understood as in the night. And Vayachalek means they divided, they went in different directions. Says Rashi, In the way of chasers who divide after they pursued, When the losers are fleeing, one in this direction, one in that direction, so those who are chasing after them also go in different directions to pursue those whom they are chasing. So Rashi says, um, he and his servants divided. That's what's being divided. It's the chasers, Abraham and his servants, they went in different directions. So Rashi acknowledges there's one problem with this and there's another problem which he doesn't acknowledge, not explicitly. And the first is that you have to sares hamikra, you have to invert the order of the text. Now, that doesn't mean that the text is written wrong. It means the text is written right, but it can be read with a meaning as if the words were in a different order. That's part of how you read the scripture. You can read it as if the words are in a different order. So instead of vayachalek aleihem laila huva avadav, you read it as vayachalek huva avadav aleihem laila. So the next problem, which Rashi doesn't explicitly mention, is the word laila doesn't really fit. It should be balaila in the night. So they were chasing and they were dividing in the night. I suppose there's another problem as well, according to this explanation, why we need to be told what time of day or night it was, is also unclear. He chased and they divided because they were chasing all the different people who were running away. It's not essential for us to know that it's in the night. So there's a number of problems with Rashi's first explanation, which is Lafib Shuto. And that is why he brings a second explanation. I'm sorry, Rashi goes on to say Laila. Uh, and here, I suppose, he does give a reason why we need to be told it's in the night. So what I just said was uh, incorrect. But here he says, Laila, Kulamar, Achasha Hashka, Lo Nimnua Milirud Fam. After it got dark, they did not stop from chasing them. So my apologies for um, not remembering this line was coming. But uh, uh, Laila here says Rashi, according to this first explanation, is to tell us that even after it got dark, and remember it was before the age, age of great illumination, and naturally people would have stopped their journeying at night, but as part of his great bravery, Abraham and his servants didn't stop from their chasing. But as I've pointed out, there are at least two problems with reading this pshat, and that is why Rashi says, Umidrash Agada. Quoting Bereshit Rabbah, the Midrash says, Shenahalek halayla, the night was what was divided. Vayachalek alehem layla, the night was divided on them. So now we've, uh, the benefit is we don't have to reinvert the word, order of the, uh, the words in the Pasuk. Uh, it makes some sense that Vayachalek alehem layla means the night was divided, which is exactly what the words mean. The only problem is, what does it mean the night was divided? So that's what Rashi continues to say. In the half, the first half of this night, a miracle was done for him. And the second half, Nishmar, Uba, was kept 
continually, Lo, for him, Lachatzot Laila Shal Mitzrayim, for the half of the night of Mitzrayim. So as we know, the night of the Exodus was a time of tremendous miracles for the Bnei Israel. The killing of the firstborn happened at the moment of midnight. And then after that, it was time for the Jews to go. So it says Rashi, the Achalek Alehem Laila means the night was split into two. And in ways which is clearly not Pshat, that's why it's a Midrash, half the night was set aside and preserved for the miracles of the Exodus. I think there's also an allusion here to uh, the battle that was going on here is somehow a uh, precursor of the battle against Mitzrayim or the defeat of Mitzrayim, which will happen to Avram's descendants. So that's Rashi's two ways of dealing with this, these, these, these hard words to translate. Answer one is you have to change the order of the words. Answer two is you don't change the order of the words, but you have to explain what it means. The night was divided. And then Rashi says, he chased them for year of the fame at Chova. Says Rashi, Ein makom Chova. There is no place which is named Chova. Eladan Kora Chova, but the place which is Dan is called Chova. Al Shem Avodazara Sha'atida Now the word Chova means liable or blame, uh, as in Chiyuv. And the reason it's called liable is because of the Avodazara, which in the future was to be placed there. So why is Rashi bothered by the fact it's called Chova? Well, Rashi has said there's no place called Chova, but I think there's something else as well. Because in the previous Pasuk, in Perit Yudalad, we were, Pasuk Yudalad, we were told, Vayiradov, he chased them, Adan, and then he stopped chasing them when he got to Dan. And in Pasuk Tetvav, Vayiradofem, he chased them, Ad Chova, and he stopped chasing them when he got to Chova. Now the chasing in Tetvav is the same as the chasing in Yudalad. In which case, the place where the chasing stopped in Yudalad must also be the place where the chasing stopped in uh, Tetvav. Yet, it's got a different name. In Yudalad, the chasing stopped in Dan, and in Tetvav, the chasing stopped in Chova. So Rashi, who wants to match the incident described in Yudalad with the incident described in Tetvav, wants to also say that Chova is the same as Dan. Now, I just want to uh, end with what I think is a beautiful insight um, that I saw in uh, Rav Barzilai's Sefer Iune Rashi. Uh, and he uh, says two things. First of all, this place is called Dan, and then it's called Chova. So Dan is a neutral term. It's just the name of the place. It's the name of the Shevet of the tribe that inherited that land. But then it's called Chova, which is not a neutral term at all. It's a term which implies guilt and liability. Says uh, Rabazali, commenting on this, and we'll see uh, the reference to Rashi in just a moment. If you look in uh, Malachim Aleph, Perak Yudbet, Pasuk Kavchet, where Yeravoam set up this eagle in Dan, and if you look at the Radak there, the Radak says something very interesting, that Yeravoam set it up not as an Avodah but just as a eagle. And says the Radak that Yeravam said to the people, look, Aaron Cohen also created an Egel. Obviously not as an Avodah Zarah, He created an Egel as a place for the Shekhinah to dwell. An alternative place to the Mishkan, if you like. Says Yeravam to the people, you don't need the Bet Migdash anymore because you've got an Egel which is a place for Hashem Shekhinah to dwell. Later on, that Egel turned into an Avodah Zarah. Later on, that became a place of actual idolatry. So we can say that in Pasuk Yudalat, Avraham Avinu understood that even the place done was going to be a bad place, but not necessarily because of Avodazara, just because of the Egel. But by Pasuk Tetvav, there's something worse that is going to happen in that place. That Egel is going to turn into a Vodazara. And by that point, we don't call it Dan, we call it Chova. And the beauty of this Chiddush, the beauty of this novel explanation, is it fits perfectly to the words of Rashi himself. Because on Pasuk Yudalad, on the words Adan, 
Rashi says, Sham Tushashkocho, Shara'ashadin and Banavla Hamid, Sham Egel. There, when it's the place is called Dan, which is more of a neutral term, Rashi refers to the Egel that's going to be placed there. But when Rashi makes the parallel comment on the place which is Chova, which Rashi makes goes out of his way to say is the same as Dan, there at the end of his comment on Tetvav, he says, it's because of not the Egel now, but the Avodah Zara. So we can say that the two Psukim, Yudalat and Tetvav, have uh, an allusion to the development, if you like, or the descent of the Egel into a, an Avodah Zara, as explained by the Radaki Malachim, and that the, that same progression from Egel to Avodah Zara is also hinted at by Rashi himself by his use of the word Egel in Pasuk Yudala, uh, Yudala, that's right, but his use of the word Avodah Zara in Pasuk Tetvav. We will stop there. In Yitz Hashem, we will carry on next week.